This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. A lot going on, and a lot going on when it relates to the virus. Mm. We have to keep track of this. We just talked about testing, but there are so many issues around this that we need to explore. We're happy to have with us Dr. Tangela Purnell, Associate Director of Johns Hopkins Urban Health Institute, Joining us on the phone from Baltimore, of course, part of the Johns Hopkins family is the Bloomberg School of Public Health, and that is supported by Mike Bloomberg, the founder of Bloomberg Philanthropies, and Bloomberg LP, the parent of this radio station. Dr. Purnell, really nice to have you with us. And listen, we talk about the virus every day, 19 different ways, because we have to. It has invaded all of our lives, whether we've been directly touched by it or whether we've been fortunate enough to not be directly touched by it, but it's affecting all of our worlds. And one of the things that we have really come to learn is that it does not affect everyone in the same way. And so much of it is determined by the disparities that already exist when it comes to healthcare. Help us understand the work that you and your team are doing. I first would like to thank both of you for having me here. It is indeed an honor to be able to talk about, you know, some of our work. And so, as you correctly alluded to, this is a problem worldwide, but in particular, this is a problem for the exact same uh, disadvantaged populations that are typically the same population that you see experiencing health um, disparities and health inequities from a variety of different causes. So, um, you know, we at the Johns Hopkins Urban Health Institute and also at the Center for Health Equity, we um, have a series of different um, approaches to try and tackle this problem. So obviously, we do research that involves uh, vulnerable populations. We do this work in conjunction with our community and the patient stakeholder partners who actually have a voice at the table and helping to really help us design implement and also disseminate our findings. Um, Another approach is really our education and training. Unfortunately, we know that all of these problems and these disparities are truly just rooted in generational inequities, and it won't be all fixed. Unfortunately, it doesn't appear that it will all be fixed in one generation. And so another thing that we really focus on is really training the next generation of health equity researchers or uh, public health practitioners so that we can make sure that this work continues so that the gains that we achieve, you know, we'll also be able to keep those gains. Dr. Purnell, I think we wonder too, like it's interesting, one of the stories we're focusing on, Jason and I were just talking about it, that, you know, Abbott coming out and saying they've got, you know, a 15-minute test uh, for the virus and getting ready to ramp it up, right? And we've talked about how we need to have systems in place that help us get control of the virus for everyone. And I do wonder, we've had lots of conversations, certainly um, because of this pandemic, about the inequalities uh, in terms of access to health care and good health care among vi- different communities. So what things, as you say, you talk with people in these communities, uh, they've got a place at the table. 
what needs to be done? And I do wonder, are there things coming out of this crisis, whether it's telemedicine or other things, that will make a difference? Absolutely. So I think that, you know, this answer is twofold. So first of all, in terms of access to testing, you're absolutely right, you know, in saying that we know that there's not equal access. And in particular, even as we get these advances in technology, for example, rapid testing, we also know that um, the dissemination of this is not equal among different communities, in particular the communities that were already disadvantaged. So I think that one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that as we are trying novel approaches to really get this virus under control, we have to think about, well, what are the structural barriers to people who are living, for example, in neighborhoods that don't have easy access to testing? Uh, We need to think about things like not necessarily requiring cars. Think about at the beginning of this, Many people had to have a car to drive up to get tested. We need to think about things like um, are people able to get tested as they are asymptomatic? Are people able to get tested without a physician prescription? So all of these things could really be a barrier to people who are already disadvantaged by this system. And then, you know, in terms of thinking about longer term, what we need to do within these communities, I think we really need to take a look at this and realize that COVID-19 is not some magical unicorn that just came out of nowhere and then all of a sudden um, disproportionately impacted certain groups of people. What it did was really open our eyes to the fact, you know, uh, more mainstream, that there are pockets of society who have not been properly taken care of by society. And we need to be committed to the long-term work of addressing these structural barriers so that the next virus or the next whatever won't continue to be the thing that keeps happening. You know, enough is enough with this. Right. Right. Well, a lot has been laid there and we really appreciate the work that you are doing. And, you know, here's hoping that as it has been laid bare and we've all become more focused on it. We'll be working towards some real solutions. Thank you so much, Dr. Tangela Purnell, Associate Director at the Johns Hopkins Urban Health Institute, joining us on the phone from Baltimore. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We want to dig into this week's issue because there's a terrific uh, series of stories all about the world of gaming, video games. We've talked about it a lot uh, on this show, but I feel like during the pandemic, everything has changed and maybe good news for some in this business. Jason Trier is a tech reporter for Bloomberg. He joins us on the phone from Westchester. Lovely Westchester. I'm here too. Uh, Joel Weber, he is the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us from Massachusetts. All right, J-Dub, set this up for us. You're not a big gamer, are you? I don't see you as a gamer. Well, everybody touches it uh, probably a little bit more than they admit. Um, it, you because can, it's, you that's can be the real thing, with right? us, it's like, Joel. You're among friends. You know, you're, you, in the West, we really think about gaming, I think, as being something that's sort of console-based. Yes. But obviously, smartphones have really changed that because, you know, you, you, I mean, you pull up a Robinhood app and it feels like you're, you're a gamer. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the what we're really seeing, though, is this year – this industry has just been on a tear. It's crushing it. And basically any company that has any gaming anywhere in its portfolio is just up. And some of these are, are way up. And, you know, that's a phenomenon that we had sort of been watching. But at the same time, like as this industry has boomed, 
it's also really exposed these kind of lingering um, issues and, and almost like a darker side. And um, we have uh, an amazing reporter in Jason who was among the cast of characters that we tapped for this cover package. Um, Jason, what, were, what was some of the stuff that you maybe wanted to make sure that we expressed in this, in this in these stories? Yeah, so as these companies are just exploding and booming and seeing their stocks hit record highs, um, there are parts of the story that the game companies don't want people to know. Um, one of those big topics that we hit in this in this cover package is um, the world of permatemps, which is kind of an epidemic problem in the tech world and also very much applies to gaming. There are a lot of gaming companies out there that rely on contractors to do what should be full-time work, what seems like full-time work, what well, would be full-time work if not for the fact that their badges were different and their, uh, they didn't get bonuses or invites to holiday parties. So um, that is one of the issues. We also talked a little bit about the, the epidemic sexism issues that um, are kind of uh, uh, prominent throughout the video game industry, um, among other things. Well, and what's interesting to... Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Joel. Jason, let's talk about some of the companies that um, have obviously been in uh, the headlines and, and really, you know, capitalizing on this moment. And, you know, obviously there's the whole epic Fortnite thing, and, and that's sort of leads to a whole other world about, you know, uh, companies that are, you know, the big tech companies that are warring with each other. But what are some of the other companies that you think are, are particularly owning this moment? Yeah, we've seen huge stock uh, leaps in um, Activision Blizzard, EA, Nintendo especially has really seized the moment. It happened that they got really lucky with their new game, Animal Crossing, which is kind of this uh, uh, simulation game in which you play as a fun, uh, like cartoony little dude or, or lady on an island full of animals and you can kind of like live out this village and play with your neighbors, kind of pretend that you can actually hang out with your neighbors and see people in person. So that came out just as the pandemic was starting. So it was perfect timing for, for them. And they have already hit remarkable sales. They sold over 22 million copies of Animal Crossing in just a few months, which is already it's one of the best selling games ever because of that. So Jason, are they on track to kind of continue this big boom or time will tell or are there are some questions about kind of the outlook here? Yeah, there are a lot of big questions because actually this year was primed to be a pretty big year for gaming even before the pandemic, before we even knew what coronavirus was, because there are two new consoles coming out this fall, the new PlayStation and the new Xbox. And uh, we are entering what, it, what, what the gaming world refers to as a new console generation, which is the type of thing that happens once every seven or eight years or so. So uh, this is a pretty monumental event for the gaming world, and we kind of are seeing the future of gaming come out this fall. So um, now all, there are all sorts of questions about the new Xbox and PlayStation and how well they'll sell. Um, we happen to also be in an economic recession, and a lot of people are right. out of work and don't have the disposable income that they did. Right. So a lot of big questions remaining, like how many people are going to be able to buy a new $500 console this fall? That is one of the big questions that we'll, we won't know until November, December or so. And who has the edge with the new consoles, or do we know yet? Is, does it remain to be seen? Yeah, well, so it's interesting. I think both of these, we have Sony on one, on one uh, side of things and Microsoft on the one side of things, but they've kind of both adopted completely different strategies, so they're not even really competing against one another anymore. In some ways they are, and they're doing the whole marketing warfare, like who has the most powerful console, and, 
and you see a lot of tweets, a lot of snarky tweets from their marketing people. But really, Sony, <laughs> nice. Sony, <laughs> Sony is still playing the same game that they always have. They're going after exclusive games. They're they're putting all this money, millions and millions of dollars, into games that you can only play on the PlayStation Five. Microsoft is taking a completely new approach, and they are adopting. They have put a lot of money, and my colleague Dina Bass wrote a great story about this for the magazine. They put a lot of money into what's called Xbox Game Pass, which is essentially Netflix for video games. You pay ten dollars a month and you can get access to a whole bunch of games and they seem to care a lot more about that than they do about selling the new console because they're trying to put their games on as many platforms as possible they don't have the same sort of exclusive strategy that sony does so if i had to predict if i had to put on my prognostication hat i would say the playstation sells more but xbox might be better positioned for the future as people kind of uh, uh go more get more accustomed to platforms rather than dedicated consoles all right, Jason Trier, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, tech reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from New York. Our thanks as well to Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joined us from Massachusetts. Check out that cover package. It is really terrific, as uh, Jason Trier said, a whole bunch of people coming together around this. They are featured in the new issue of the magazine. That is available at Bloomberg.com and the Bloomberg Terminal as well. So, Jason, our most read story on the Bloomberg, it's about Fed Chair Jay Powell unveiling a new approach to setting U.S. monetary policy, letting inflation and employment run higher in a shift that will likely keep interest rates low for years to come. We talked about this with Mike McKee at the top of our broadcast. It's really all part of our economic reality and one where many have searched to describe this particular recovery. In today's Business Week Economics, we've got one perspective on this, and it is gaining momentum. It's called the K-Shape Recovery, first written about, I think, in June by Peter Atwater. He's adjunct professor and lecturer of economics at William & Mary. He joins us on the phone from Pennsylvania. I am so delighted, we both are, that you are here. We've been doing a little bit of a Twitter conversation, but tell us about your observations of the economy, Peter, and how you came to this, because it really does tell the story of what's been going on because of the virus, because of the so many you know inequalities that that has kind of laid bare again. Sure. Thank you, Carol. Um, so I watched the world through the lens of confidence, and beginning in March, I noticed something really interesting. We all panicked together. You could see the collapse in confidence being spread across the entire economy. Everybody felt it the same way. But the migration of people, professionals to the work-from-home environment, put them very quickly on stable ground, and you could see their confidence start to rebound, where out into the the real economy, you know, small businesses, people working in the travel industry, it was very clear that their they were not on solid ground. In fact, for many of them, you could start to see conditions getting worse. And um, at some point in April, I started writing about it. And on Twitter, uh, somebody was talking about all the different letters and mentioned the letter K. And I thought, this is perfect. This is exactly what we're seeing, is that for some in the economy, things are improving. And for others, the deterioration has just been this very painful decline. And so, Peter, how much of this is new and how much of it is exacerbating things that were already there? So I think if you were to step back and look at the recovery from the banking crisis, that itself was very much a K-shaped recovery. You know, mm. the financial markets took off very quickly as the Fed went into overdrive. But, you know, one of the things that came out 
earlier today in the statements from from Chairman Powell and, and others is that it took until very late in the cycle for the benefits of all of that trickle down to reach low-income Americans. And so I think we, we've had this prolonged 10-year K-shaped recovery that has now been compounded by a very sharp rebound for some, and it's just others are left hanging. So is this our world, our new world economic reality, Peter, in that we're just going to have K recoveries? Um, or can we, you know, as you said, the trickle down, the benefits trickle down very late, you know, coming off the financial crisis. How do we get it so that the benefits get to everybody sooner on? So I think one of the things that we need to recognize is that from an economic perspective, we have to ensure that there is support for those at the low end because we know that this condition lasts, that it takes a long period of time. And in that process, I think Congress made a valiant effort, but this, the attention to the, the, uh, the relief efforts for the pandemic, they were really oriented around a mindset that this was temporary. And so, unfortunately, those that were, you know, the beneficiaries of that, they started as early as late May beginning to wonder, is this coming to an end? And from a confidence perspective, we need certainty. They need to know that these support mechanisms are going to be in place until employment comes back. So, Peter, as we think about a K-shaped recovery going forward, What's the difference, the inflection point, or the chances, I'm giving you so many scenarios here, that it becomes just a K-shaped economy? Um, I think we're reaching a point where it has become so obvious that that almost prevents it from happening. Hmm. Um, You know, if I look around in the financial markets, you see an extraordinary divide between big business and small business. You see it in individuals. You see it in so many levels that you you have stacked inequity on one end and stacked privilege on the other. And my my sense is that much of this is we're already seeing manifest in the social unrest around the country. Um, there's clear resonance to that sense of inequity and you know even people who can't articulate it feel that there is something unjust about the system as it exists today and so i think this is m- even much more of a social k issue as it is an economic one and i think you know policymakers and and leaders of, of business need to recognize that um, that lack of confidence, that sense of hopelessness that many on the leg of the K are feeling is now motivating people to 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 respond. So, Peter, you know, it's interesting that you say that. I have conversations with my young nieces who are in their 20s, you know, like, God, capitalism is terrible. I'm like, no, it builds things. It also provides, you know, this is, you know, where people can have opportunities to build a company from nothing and then give back, you know. So there are a lot of pluses to it. But, yes, it has created some massive inequalities in our systems. I am curious about some of the conversations you're having at William & Mary. And what are the policies from your perspective as you study this that you think will make a difference, will reduce those gaps that currently exist in our society and have for a while and have just been building and getting wider and wider? 
I, I think one of the things that has to be looked at is, you know, at the root of this, in many ways, goes back to the early 1980s with that notion of shareholder um, primacy, that mm. the shareholder came first. And as much as we want to enjoy the benefits of capitalism, I think that that, that pendulum has shifted to such an extreme. And, and you saw it in, in news reports yesterday. You know, Salesforce announces you know record earnings, stock price soars, and at the same time, 10,000 employees to be laid off. That's yeah. a very mixed right. message from capitalism. Right. Well, so so what is it, you know, Business Roundtable has come out and said, okay, there's multiple, you know, parties that matter, constituents that we have to think about. But I, I don't know. It's a lot of talk, and I want to see whether or not things change. What well, do we need to do? Well, and I think you're seeing yeah. change start to happen. I mean, if you, okay. if you were to just look at, you know, look at the NBA last night. Yeah. being forced to respond to you know the, the social issues as they're manifesting around us yeah i wonder and i'm glad you said that i wondered what you made of that because there are as you well know a lot of economics underneath the big business of sports the nba and beyond and you have seen those issues collide in a really big way yeah and and you know if we go back to to the outbreak, you know, we, we forget that the NBA, that the Utah Jazz being in, infected with the virus, that was a critical tipping yeah. point in sentiment. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I look to what's happened this week in much the same way that suddenly this feels very real to people, this, this collective sense of inequity. Yeah, March 11th. I mean, that will be that. It, it's interesting you say that because March 11th was the day that the NBA shut down. Also, the day that we learned that Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson had the coronavirus. It all happened on the same day, I believe. I'm pretty sure I have that right. You and do. that changed everything. It was a yep. game changer, right? It was yeah. a game changer. Um, but that speaks to, sorry, that speaks to this whole notion of confidence that you're talking about. And, yeah. and perception plays into that, Peter. It's entirely perception-based, and it relates to our perceptions of certainty and control. And if you think about those that are on this leg of this K-shaped recovery, they feel as if they have neither. They are voiceless, powerless, and the future feels very unclear. And that's that's such a difference to those on the arm. Hey, Peter, just have about 30 seconds. Do you have hope that we can change, especially when a lot of these folks don't have a place at the table? I, I do have hope. Um, I think that, that there are ways for us to bring back a greater sense of, of equity. Um, but it's going to require you know, collective sacrifice. Yeah. But, but remember, these are, these are, many of these are essential workers. You know, these, these are food providers, healthcare right. providers. They're critical to the, the system overall. All right. right. We have to leave it there. And I've got to say, this is something where I read something that Joe Weisenthal wrote. Then I went to Twitter and I found Peter and I'm so glad and I hope he comes back. I think we have a new member of our gang. I'm just (laughs) going to say. I think we do. Peter Atwater, he's adjunct professor of economics at William & Mary, joining us on the phone from Pennsylvania. Check out his writings on a K-shaped recovery. It's really, really smart. This is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. Just drive, baby.
It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. And we talked about our gang earlier. Love the <laughs> fact that this guy is part of our gang. Part of the reason he's a super nice guy. The other yeah. part, he's really good at his job. Totally. I have to say, one of the top performing fund managers in his category. Talking about Eric Clark, portfolio manager for Rational Dynamic Brands Fund. Joining us on the phone from San Diego. Eric, how are you? It's been a minute, as the kids say. And I wonder how you're doing there in Southern California. It's been wild. Jason, I'm doing great. Uh, it has been wild. Uh, thankfully, the fires aren't uh, where they are up in L.A., but we're, yeah. we're doing okay. I, I can tell you that if you asked me uh, uh, March 1st, if we would have been sitting here with this kind of market, with these kinds of returns, I would have said that's absolutely impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, you know, it's interesting. I feel like this speaks to we had a, a conversation with Peter Atwater at William and Mary, this K-shaped recovery and this whole idea that there are some that are doing fine in this pandemic and this shutdown, others who are not. Just like there are big companies who've been able to access the capital markets and have enough money to shore up their businesses, small businesses, it's a tougher story. We know that. So when you look at brands, Eric, are you starting to look at it through kind of the post-pandemic lens or those that have actually done well here um, in terms of your portfolio? Well, we're certainly clustered in the things that have what I call a lot of business model flexibility, which is what helped them, uh, you know, kind of recover and even thrive in some cases better than others. I will tell you that I'm certainly looking for ideas in the recovery basket. I'm frankly just a little bit cautious about the re- the recovery and its sustainability. Um, I'm not so sure we're not going to see another spike in the virus maybe in the, in the fall when the flu season starts. And then we have the volatility around elections. So I, I just feel like the market has gone straight up since March 23rd. And, and now we just need to chop around a little bit and work off some of this overbought in the sentiment. Um, but, I, but I still like the models that are very flexible, that, you know, if you want to buy something and you're in an important category and you're the relevant brand, right. you can do it whether it's in the store or, or online. Well, and that notion of flexibility and adaptability, I think, is really important. And I think about a conversation that's actually featured in the magazine uh, this week that Carol and I had with the CEO of Blue Apron, Linda Kozlowski. And, you know, she was talking about how they are working under this assumption that even when we get to whatever the next normal is going to be, behavior will be changed. And those companies that were able to adapt during this period may continue to see some strength and maybe that strength accelerates. And as I look at some of the names you like, whether it's Lululemon, which I always ask you about and am fascinated by, as you know, NVIDIA, BABA, Twitter, Netflix. I mean, they all seem to have those characteristics of they've been able to figure this out and also have positioned themselves to do well with whatever comes next. Yeah, I mean, you know, consumers are consumers are fickle, but not, you know, when they become loyal to you for whatever reason. The, you really have to mess up on a regular basis to push them away. And so I think, I think for the, the e-commerce users will just continue to do what they were doing. The okay. people who weren't big e-commerce users are probably going to do more of that now that they've seen how easy it is. 
And, uh, and, you know, the spending that we've been doing has been in much more narrow cases with, you know, with home improvements or, you know, we're stuck in our homes, so we want to upgrade our homes and, uh, and home furnishings and we want to order things online and we're exercising more because we have more time. And so we like the Lululemon and I, I love the Lulu buying the mirror. I just, we bought a mirror. I don't know if you guys have one. The, there is enormous potential for that mirror in the Lulu stores. Really? Tell me, tell me about the mirror. I don't have one. But Carol so and I cool. both have Pelotons, but um, I mean, we, I, so I know cool. a lot about it. But tell me how it is as a user. It, it's, it's amazing. So, you, you, you know, it's a, it's a stand-up mirror. So you get a chance to kind of see what you're doing with the exercises. You have this hologram of your instructor. And they have like 70 different classes. I mean, they're building new classes every day different you know one could be stretch one could be yoga one could be boxing so you essentially can get all of the things that you need from an exercise perspective uh right there with your own personal coach when you want it how you want it and it's and it's intuitive it learns you know i, I filled out a profile and in the middle of my exercises it actually gave me an alternative exercise because i told it i had bad knees hmm. i mean this thing is, is so this cool. thing is going to learn over time with yeah. your habits and and so it's it's intriguing as a as a new business model for Lulu, even when the current business model is is just crushing it right now. We need to have them on, Jason, because we really yeah, need to talk about sure. it. Hey, Eric, I have to ask you: Abbott Labs is in your portfolio. You must feel pretty good today. <laughs> well, uh, I would love to say that I did. I actually sold it like a dum dum because no! the stock just the stock broke down a little bit, and we 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 looked, and you know we're pretty active, so uh, I I didn't give it enough time. Um, and so I'm happy for, for, for Abbott shareholders. I am a little skeptical of how this whole thing's going to work. I mean, I'm going to have to get a test every day now just to make, just to feel comfortable, but you know, baby steps, right? I, I think this is super helpful and probably why a lot of the recovery stocks are doing well today. Oh, my apologies. I think it was then maybe the end of the most recent quarter or something that it had listed as a holding. Well, sorry yeah, for we you. we recently sold it. <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, before we That's let you go, Eric, talk a little bit about Netflix because I feel like people are fascinated by that, especially as some of the other streamers, uh, especially from the more traditional media world like Disney, have come on. You still like Netflix here? I still love Netflix. Uh, you know, I think it's one of those things, and I, maybe maybe this is just my family, but when we turn on the television, we got rid of cable long ago. When we turn on television, we see our Roku interface, mm -hmm. and then we look and decide which streamer we want to go to. And, and nine out of ten times, the first place we go is Netflix. That's the first place we search for content. Hmm. And so Netflix has become the cable. That's, that's where we start. And if we can't find anything in Netflix, then maybe we move on to Amazon Prime or maybe there's a, you know, the, the show Billions on Showtime or, or whatever the case is. So I just feel like, yes, the U.S. is very penetrated. The, the non-U.S. is still very underpenetrated. I do believe they have right. pricing power because it's still cheap. Churn is going to stay low. So I, I love the name, even though it's pretty expensive. So it's yeah. got a huge position. All right. Let's not make it so long before we catch up with you again. Really good to hear your voice. Eric Clark, Portfolio Manager, Rational and Dynamic Brands Fund. Getting in shape in San Diego with his so mirror. Cool. He already was, but uh, interesting to hear that endorsement. This is Bloomberg. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.